0: How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance, unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11FS.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. LFG people, hello and welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm Maurício Magaldi, Global Strategy Director for Crypto at 11FS. This is episode 177 and I'm joined by my amazing co-host Kai Sheffield, Head of Crypto at Visa. How are you doing, Kai? Welcome to the show.
1: I am great. It's the last episode of the calendar year. It's been such a good time. Appreciate everyone listening and just learning with us. And so we've got some great guests to to finish out the year strong.
0: Great. Yeah, it's been a great, very eventful year. So this is an insights episode. We will be focusing on AML and how regulation can be a solution, essentially. We want to take a deep dive on how the industry is preventing AML or preventing ML and illicit financing looking at recent developments and what we hope the future will bring in this sector. To dig into this, we're also joined by Ari Redward, Head of Legal and Government Affairs at TRM Labs. Welcome to the show, Ari. Good to have you with us.
2: Hey, excited to be here with you guys. Thank you so much for having me.
0: And we're also joined by Jessica Kath, Head of Financial Crime Project Delivery at FinTrill. Welcome to the show, Jessica. How are you doing today?
3: Not too bad. A miniature Christmas cold, but I'm going to get through it. It's lovely to be here.
0: Tis the season. Awesome. So before we dive in, just as a reminder to our listeners, the views or opinions of our panel are their own and don't necessarily reflect those of the companies that they are representing. And as always, nothing we say should be taken as tax, financial, or legal advice. So do your own research. All right, let's get started. First part, we're going to cover a little bit of understanding of anti-money laundering, what it means, what it means in traditional finance, what exactly, why does it exist and what does it work. So I'm going to start with you, uh, Jessica. Can you give us a little bit of a glimpse of what AML is in traditional finance? And then we can explore how these things reflect into the world of crypto.
3: Sure, yeah. I'm really lucky at FinTrail to work with a lot of different firms, both traditional and crypto, and how to deal with anti-money laundering, or or how to deal with money laundering. Um, AML is banded around the industry a lot, and a lot of people use it intertwined with general anti-financial crime. But basically, money laundering is laundering the illicit proceeds of some sort of crime. So it's basically moving money in order to disguise its original source. So whether that be through traditional means or whether or not that be through crypto means it's basically the same thing it's moving and legitimizing some sort of money that's come from i don't know fraud uh bribery and corruption tax evasion something like that um so it's it's pretty much the same and it but it's basically the same across both moving something that's illicit
0: and in terms of how these things are structured in in a traditional setting i mean are you have a a long standing background with, with regulators and working government and public sector as well. What are the components that uh, make up a, an anti money laundering operation? Yeah,
2: no, it's a great question. And I think, you know, Jessica knows this, I think, better than anyone in this space. But, you know, there are so many different pieces to sort of the anti-money laundering world, right? You have law enforcement who are investigating cases of money laundering and financial crime to build investigations and prosecute bad actors. Um, you have regulators that are trying to come up with sort of sound regulation to stop uh, money laundering from happening in the first place you know how, how can we be um, how, how can we craft regulation you have policymakers right that what are the right legal frameworks what are the laws and I know we'll get a lot of that today but really at the front lines of anti-money laundering are the the compliance officers at financial institutions and what they're doing is that they're ensuring that every transaction we call it transaction monitoring every transaction that is going through their financial institution traditional FI or crypto, Uh, is not not a bad actor who's trying to turn illegitimate proceeds into legitimate proceeds, or at least looking like legitimate proceeds, by moving them through their systems. And uh, these folks are really sort of tip of the spear when it comes to stopping bad actors from moving money.
0: Great. So I see from the financial traditional finance uh, world where I come from, uh, that this is a, one of the largest concerns and a lot of investment goes through systems and data and processes uh, Kai what's your perspective on this on the traditional end of things
1: yeah so i'm i'm by no means an, an expert you know on on the topic so excited to to learn from Ari and and Jessica i think what's what's interesting when you compare you know aml in traditional finance to to crypto is you've know, you've had compliance officers who have been working, setting up procedures and controls for traditional payment networks for banks for decades. Uh, And I would imagine that there there just hasn't been as much uh, change in new technologies and how you have to manage uh, some of these policies. And so it's been more about executing, operating the policies, running them over time. Now that you have new technologies that are emerging, new payment networks that have different properties, then the challenge has been for people who have built compliance programs in a traditional financial institution, how do you take you know, some of the same principles, some of that ex- same experience, and then apply it to crypto? And there are a whole new set of tools that you can use in crypto. And so I'm, I'm interested to hear more about kind of where this intersection is between you know, the tools that are used for traditional finance, you know, AML, and the tools and processes used for crypto, and you know, is it a completely different set, or is it you know a lot of them are the same? There's just these new things like the ability to analyze a, a blockchain.
0: I love that, but before before we go, that let me I'll, I'll give you a, a tiny bit of provocation to both tessic and Ari, and and we'll take it into the weeds of how these things are uh, blending in. But I really uh, want to know if you can is this working in traditional finance? Because the critics of crypto say, well, crypto, and there's an ECB manifestation last week that was like, oh, crypto is, is, is a gateway to money laundering, right? Well, if you're in blockchain, you know that it's not exactly true, but this comes from an angle that says, well, in traditional finance, this, this works. And I wanna hear from the experts whether you believe that if you can share, obviously. And obviously, what are the gaps? And then I'll go to Kai's point. What are the gaps in traditional finance that now crypto comes in helping to fulfill for a better AML coverage?
3: Yeah, I'm happy to jump on that. Um, Short answer, no, it's not working perfectly in traditional finance at all. Um, There are some key challenges for anti-financial crime or anti-money laundering prevention. So, Number one is the lack of information sharing, because what are we trying to do as financial institutions? We are not the police. We are not um, an agency that can go out and actually fine or deal with the the criminal itself. Our responsibility is to identify suspicion and hand that suspicion over to any relevant law enforcement agent. Um, But we can't really identify suspicion properly without sharing more information to be able to identify suspicious behaviors or suspicious patterns, that kind of thing. Um, So there's a limit to how much we can do traditional firms can only see part of the story that's within their transaction monitoring or within their customer book. So there is a limit there. And there's also some hesitation from regulators about using new tools. Really interesting case with uh, the bank and the Dutch Central Bank, where they took the regulator to court for not allowing them to use AI to be able to identify suspicious behaviors and transaction patterns. So there are some real key challenges here when it comes to uh, dealing with money laundering and traditional finance, but there are some things that they do get right a little bit. So we have improved. We're moving to a risk-based approach instead of a rules-based approach. So really trying to look at where the risks are and actually dealing with those risks in line with the product and that kind of thing. But there are certainly a lot more that we need to do to actually make this work in traditional finance and also in crypto. I
0: love that. So let's let's breach then to crypto. Um, what is it from uh, financial services, traditional financial services that we see now with what we know that crypto can come to help?
2: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think Kai sort of got got to a lot of these sort of points or jumping off points. You know, it's interesting. Look, the, the entire anti-money laundering sort of system globally has always relied on sort of these siloed intermediaries, right, banks essentially. And what those banks do is that they provide suspicious activity reports or other types of reporting to their regulator directly. And the only pe- people that uh, essentially see those, what we call SARS in the United States, but the, every regulator calls them something different globally, is the only people that ever see them are the banks and the regulator. And maybe law enforcement, if they dig through th- – you know, thousands or or more pages of documents. When I was a federal prosecutor for a long time, we used to have a SAR task force where the entire job of this group was to go through these suspicious activity reports and try to make cases. Um, but crypto really, really turns that all on its head, right? Because the nature of blockchains, those qualities, transparent, permanent, traceable, really allow regulators now full visibility on their entire regulated ecosystem. So they don't necessarily have to rely exclusively on financial institutions, crypto businesses for those siloed SARS. So it does a couple things. One, uh, it really allows a lot more visibility from a regulator or even from financial institutions to understand sort of the, enti- the entire ecosystem. It does something else, and that is sort of puts the onus potentially on a regulator to actually see everything that's going on. And obviously, that's a very difficult task that requires you know, uh, resources and and manpower. Um, but I say all that because really it it is that the principles are all the same. I think to Kai and Jessica's point, right? The principles are exactly the same. You want to stop bad actors from engaging in your platforms and you need to, you need to monitor every single transaction and and screen every single customer that comes through. But it really just the, the nature of blockchains, you can do
0: this a lot better, um, with a lot more visibility. Got it. No, I I hear you. And I think that uh, the whole discussion about transparency, which is paramount in our industry, and about traceability and the immutability, the ability to actually audit not only what happened, but what happened when it happened. The timeliness of it is a vantage point that regulators haven't yet tapped into for the most part. right? So from everything that happened recently in, in the sense of the crypto industry coming to kind of this uh, teenage years of kind of trying to find its feet. What have you seen that works and that doesn't in the context of money laundering? Because there were a few things uh, that happened this year, especially with the sanctioning side of AML, that were very controversial. They probably had to happen, but they might not have happened the best way it could have uh, proceeded. So what is, what is and, and, I'll, and I'll open this for the panel, Kai, I want to hear it uh, here too. What is it that these cases like tornado cash or similar cases represent in the evolution of our industry?
2: Uh, I'm, I'm having to take a crack at tornado cash and everyone else should uh, sort of feel free to jump in. Look, I think 2022, if I'm looking back at sort of the big stories, really like – Sanctions was just a huge piece of sort of how you know we were thinking about financial crime and and, and the, the you know in, in 2022 and Tornado Cash was obviously the biggest story. but Just by way of really quick background, you know, essentially uh, North Korea uh, has been engaging in hacks and cyber attacks on cryptocurrency businesses, really at alarming speed and scale. I mean, we've never seen anything like it. Uh, you know, we've seen about, according to TRM, at least this year about 3.7, 3.8 billion in hacks against DeFi related entities. Um, and a lot of those has been by nation-state actors like like North Korea. So North Korea attacked the Ronin Bridge, which was part, part of the play-to-earn game Axie Infinity, and and uh, stole about $600 million, which for North – well, for anyone is a lot of money for North Korea, uh, it was going to be used or is used to fund weapons proliferation. Um, so ultimately – uh, the same, OFAC, uh, which is part of the Department of Treasury in the US is the sanctions regulator. And they essentially th- tried to figure out how do we react to this happening. I think Ronin was a really interesting moment because it changed the way we think about, um, hacks, right? From like a, a law enforcement issue to really a national security issue. And that's when Treasury and the White House got involved. Um, so, so, so very quickly, it was the first time ever that OFAC actually used sanctions against North Korea-related entities in this sort of cyber warfare context. So So OFAC sanctioned the address where the hacked funds first moved, added to the SDN list. And then OFAC said, all right, we're going to use blockchain intelligence like TRM or these other tools to start to follow the money. Because as you mentioned, Maurizio, you can do that in crypto, right? They sanctioned two more addresses. And then they said to themselves, well, how do we keep following the money? So they sanctioned a Bitcoin mixer Uh, called Blender.io. But then the overwhelming, you know, amount of money laundering was going through Tornado Cash, which is a decentralized protocol on Ethereum, and ultimately OFAC sanctioned uh, Tornado Cash. And the question that sort of arose is, well, what about all the regular users who are trying to gain more degree of privacy in, you know, in a more open financial system? And we sort of started this whole conversation. So on the one hand, you have National security interests, right? We need to stop bad actors like North Korea from laundering funds. But on the other hand, you had all of these regular users who were now potentially engaging in sanctioned uh, activity uh, by by moving their funds in and out of Tornado Cash. Uh, lots more to discuss there, and happy to sort of uh, elaborate. But I uh, I I think that's sort of like a, a decent baseline uh, start on this.
1: And if I'm if I'm remembering this correctly, I mean this first case of sanctioning an actual protocol that you know my understanding is before it was you know sanctions would happen for an individual or an entity but here you have you know software that is running autonomously uh, there isn't really an entity behind it but anyone who touches that that software you know is you know subject to you know any number of, of penalties you know from a sanctions perspective so maybe Jessica how how have you seen the industry respond and, and how did companies, you know, deal with that uh, if a customer had touched Tornado Cash, you know, before, you know, were, were people, you know, preventing uh, transactions from, from going there? What, what does the industry do now that that happens?
3: Yeah, it wasn't met very kindly by lots of people in the industry. And actually, really interestingly, at our uh, conference last year, we had this exact discussion about whether or not mixers should be sanctioned. Um, It's kind of great that we had this conversation a year before it happened. But the ultimate answer was no, these should not be sanctioned. And and it kind of, from our perspective, it's kind of a knee jerk reaction to something that is not necessarily the biggest risk focus. Um, I mean, AML in traditional finance is still a m- much bigger issue and much higher in value terms. But we're looking at sanctioning, you know, all of these different things, which are very, very difficult in practice to actually implement. Um, it certainly wasn't met very well in the industry. I mean, you take the the Coinbase court case, for example, um, that's still ongoing, I believe, at the moment that's not a positive reaction to this. And it's it's a very, very difficult one for people to start implementing in practice. And it really starts to push the boundaries as to what OFAC can and cannot sanction if it starts sanctioning software. So where is the end point here? And what, is, what should OFAC's role be within the AML space? And where does it stop? So I think this is a really interesting conversation. And obviously, from my perspective, I am risk averse, I am an anti-financial crime professional, but I still see this as a very challenging topic that perhaps they haven't quite got right. But interesting to hear what other people think of that.
2: I love the way Jessica sort of phrased that in questions, right? Because like I, I you know, I'm constantly asking myself to sort of work through these different issues when it comes to this, right? Like we need to figure out ways to stop bad actors from moving funds at, you know, a really scale, right? We're talking billions of dollars, but at the same time, we want regular users to be able to use these sorts of tools. One one kind of interesting thing that may not have necessarily been Part of how OFAC was thinking, I I don't know. And that is, look, I mean, we're hearing more and more about sort of how to deal with sanctions today in the crypto industry. You know, at TRM, we work with many of kind of the leading DeFi protocols, um, many of whom are doing some kind of sanction screening today on their front end. In other words, through their website, um, which is really where you can where you can do. Uh, Sanction screening today. I think a really much more interesting question and we're seeing already, you know, conversations about this in Europe with maybe a Mika 2 type of thing. Uh, Treasure, the US Treasury Department just came out with uh, the uh, is going to come out with a risk assessment for DeFi right? You know, hey, can we do compliance at the protocol layer? Like, you know, how should we thinking about co- compliance in a more decentralized space? And we've seen sort of more and more conversations around that. Lastly, I think Jessica made this great point that a lot of people conflate the terminology. You know, I think until tornado cash in the crypto space, we heard like AML and sanctions, like it was one word. And I think what we've seen now is a little bit more focus on some of the differences, right? Sanctions is, is a strict liability, like, don't get it wrong. Like, you've got to comply with this. I don't care who you are. Ovac clearly doesn't care who you are. Uh, but at the same time, AML is different, right? It's a risk-based approach. you got to do everything you can. So I, I think we're seeing a little bit more of a nuanced conversation about how to do some stuff, some of this stuff. And I think that's probably a good thing.
3: And it's, I mean, it's, it's still not perfect in the traditional finance space either. So that conversation is happening at the same time across everything. You know, so really starting to understand this, we do need to take that more nuanced approach. Ari is absolutely right.
1: I wanted to go a, a little bit of a, a different direction. of I, I'm curious how you think about the role of of KYC in building AML programs, and how does KYC differ from a traditional you know finance, traditional payment you know company compliance perspective versus a a crypto one? Um, curious, maybe Jessica to start of just unpacking the the differences there.
3: Yeah, we've worked with a number of um, crypto exchanges this year to start to implement uh, their sort of CDD process so customer due diligence processes. So that's the checks that they do on their customers when they onboard them, as well as the ongoing monitoring of their customers throughout the customer relationship. Um, And ultimately, there is very little difference between customer due diligence or KYC, know your customer checks in the crypto space versus the traditional space It's more the cultural openness to different technologies to use as part of that onboarding journey that's the main difference. So when we deal with a lot of traditional firms, um, they might not have the cultural awareness or openness to some of the new technologies that are out there to speed up that onboarding journey, um, improve the customer experience. But in the crypto space, they're very open to looking for what's the best tool out there to enable me to do identity verification very quickly um, and then implementing that at speed. So it's more that cultural difference that makes it um, very different. But at the same time, the checks that they're actually doing are ultimately the same. Because the same requirements, if they are regulated, the same the, the requirements are the same for both.
0: Um, I want to maybe go back to this particular context in the sense of tooling, right? We're, we're talking about data. We're talking about the blockchain. We're talking about the traditional finance systems that are partially obscure to to the law or to monitoring because they're all uh, self-contained and they're like servers and data centers. Some still use mainframes. So it's super self-contained, super protected, blockchains are public, the data is out there. So we're always trying to balance out privacy, anonymity or pseudonymity with KYC, which is you are who you say you are and your transactions are licit in the context of what you do as a business or as an individual. So what is, what is it that we're getting it right in crypto? In this context of tooling, that on the end of the traditional finance, if we blend these two things, there is a not a stifling of innovation, but actually bringing that data innovation towards traditional finance so they can also benefit from it and maybe stop being scared of blockchains. Yeah, I think this is one of the really most
2: important questions in the space, and I'm not sure there's a good answer today, but the conversations around sort of how to solve this, I think, are some of the most interesting. I mean, just quickly, I mean, I think what Jessica described was, was so perfect, but it was really the – how centralized exchanges do KYC similarly to – traditional financial institutions, which is absolutely true. If you ever go open a bank account, it's pretty much the same process as opening an account at Gemini or Kraken or or Coinbase. Um, But where this gets really interesting is sort of like, well, what is KYC or identity in a truly decentralized world, right? And I think that's where all these conversations around digital identity and, hey, could there be something where I go around uh, sort of, you know, on transacting on blockchains, but people still know who I am for purposes of sort of you know, knowing who you're engaging with. Um, just just like sort of backing up a second, you know, like we talk all the time about these tools um, and and just really, really quickly. So at TRM, essentially what we do is we take all that raw blockchain data, right, the sort of the alphanumeric address, the transaction data, and we layer it with threat intelligence. So we're not saying, you know, hey, that's Jessica's or Kai's or Maurizio's wallet. But what we are saying is, hey, uh, you know, that's, uh, While it is associated with ISIS, or it's associated with Coinbase, or or an exchange, right? Like we're able to sort of just give insights into sort of who you're transacting with, uh, mostly from sort of a risk perspective. So it's very different than sort of this idea of KYC. But actually, the blockchain allows you a lot more intelligence, you know, beyond just sort of who's providing a driver's license or or a screenshot than necessarily we have in traditional um, traditional AML. Um, Jessica, is that sort of, what What do you think about any of that?
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely. But I would just add that there are some new sort of KYC tools as well that enable you to verify somebody's identity without actually knowing or having the name of that person as part of your data set. So that really starts to push the boundaries here where you are actually verifying to a standard but you don't see that data, so that privacy element is, plays into this. And again, there's so many conversations in the UK right now about whether or not we should have better digital identities. Perhaps we should have everyone should have a digital identity wallet, where that they then prov- provide access to when you want to open a new account or whatever you want to do, and all of that information is pre-verified. But in the UK, obviously, we don't even have an ID card, so we have nothing at the moment, and we're very averse to those kind of things. But it's really around that privacy versus making sure that you've actually got your identity verified and you are meeting those really really important standards. So yeah, it's a really really delicate balance. But there are new technologies that are starting to provide us with new ways of conducting this essential verification.
1: So is it fair to say, like just just to summarize, like in traditional finance, you know, you have KYC and pretty much everything is KYC. But it's much more challenging to do this real-time monitoring and collaboration between different institutions. And then in crypto, at least on-chain, in self-custodial wallets, in DeFi, you have this ability to do really good real-time monitoring and collaboration, but you don't really have KYC yet. And so in the future, these two things are going to be combined where you could have some on chain attestation of KYC, you could have a permission liquidity pool in DeFi where you know that someone has been KYC'd and you'll have all of the tools to be able to monitor it. Is that the right way to think about it? Or is the monitoring enough where you don't need necessarily to recreate and bring
2: KYC on chain the same way? So Kai, you know you asked that as a question, but like it was a really amazing summary of all those points, right? It was really <laughs> Really articulate. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, I I I think I, I think that's that's absolutely right. Um, and where I think the sort of last piece of what you just said goes to is the question that's sort of the most interesting question today when it comes to sort of regulators. And just 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 quickly on sort of, I know we're gonna talk more about regulation later, but the reality is like regulation up till basically this minute in the crypto space has always been how do we regulate centralized exchanges, right? Wallets that are transacting with you know major cryptocurrency exchanges. That's why we keep talking about the travel rule and the way they engage with unhosted or self-hosted wallets. I think we're just starting, and I'm not sure FTX really helped this. We were really just starting to talk about I think really, how do we think about regulation, AML compliance in a truly decentralized space? That's why we have sort of, you know, regulators are just starting to talk about that. Um, but I think that's this question of digital identity and how uh, what how self-hosted wallets or, 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 um, or, or self-custody is, is sort of engaging with each other. I think those are the questions to me, 2023 and beyond is going to be really those conversations.
3: And just to that final point, actually, I think you made the point that ongoing monitoring is absolutely key and we can do this much better through the blockchain, et cetera. But how important is verifying that identity? And it actually is exceptionally important because when you are tracing illicit funds, what do you actually want to do with them at the end of the day? You want to freeze them and get them back. And if you don't know the end identity, then what's the point in anti-money laundering at all? Um, So that's the absolutely critical part of the puzzle that needs to be in place to make sure all of this work.
0: Love it. That is an absolute. Brilliant way to segue into our next section of the show. We'll just uh, take a breather uh, to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like Fintech FastTrack a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at Visa.com forward slash crypto.
3: Here at 11FS, we believe in explaining FS without the BS. That's why we created our 11FS Explore series, weekly videos that break down a complicated financial services topic into something everyone can get their head around such as on Rampy, Buy Now, Pay Later, The Cost of Living, ESG, Stable Points, telematics Insurance, and Inclusive Design. Search 11 First Explores on YouTube now.
0: Welcome back. Now that we've covered uh, like uh, looking backwards, let's look forward. Let's look to what's coming. Ari, you alluded to 2023, right? Uh, and also we had this very material event with FTX uh, in November, and that obviously has put not only regulators, but legislators uh, fired up to do something. And maybe the hastiness of doing something means we're going to be seeing very pendular, uh, almost choke-like regulation coming out uh, of these conversations. So Let's, let's try and break it down a little bit for the, the audience. What is it that the countries, because we're currently regulated at a jurisdictional level, so we're seeing a lot of conversation coming out of the U.S. for obvious reasons, one of the most important um, economic centers. There's a lot of conversation here in the U.K. as well. So what are we seeing in a couple of these major jurisdictions that point to that pendular positioning of uh, laws and regulation coming in the next, say, 12, 18 months?
2: Yeah, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a bright side kind of guy, and it's the holiday season, so I'm not going to get too dark here. Um, I, I, I honestly think that if this was three years ago, we may have seen this sort of knee jerk that, that very well could have been a part of this. Uh, and that's part of because I don't think regulators had really been thinking, um, you know, let's say, three to five years ago, the way they are today. And I think there's a lot of sort of either conversations, consultations, guidance, regulatory conversation, and some and some regulation really already in place, um, in, in the crypto space. I also think it's sort of I, I'm hearing more and more the narrative that I think is right. And that is FTX, for example, uh really is a was a centralized financial institution. And the fraud here did not occur on blockchains, right? It occurred off chain in the sort of commingling of user funds to make investments, to pay um to, to pay campaign contributions, sort of the the, the full scope of the indictment. Um, so, 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 I think my view is that we're not necessarily going to see a full sort of knee jerk into the crypto space. We have seen sort of already out of the U.S. Congress some proposals around anti money laundering, in particular that 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 felt sort of you know more aligned to your sort of knee knee jerk um, response. That said, just really quickly, I think you you nailed it with the U.S. and the U.K. in particular. I think you'd add the EU with MiCA, uh, which has not yet been. Um, passed or implemented, but will in early 2023 and over the next year or two will be implemented by um, member states. And really what that creates is a full licensing regime for all of Europe. And what that basically means is that if I get a license to run a crypto business in Spain, it's passportable to France and Portugal and Germany and that provides a lot of regulatory clarity. And I mean, Kai could speak really you know, perfectly to this, but what we hear from clients is, hey, you know, I care about what's written on the page, but I actually care a lot more about just knowing what the expectations are from regulators um, you know, as we try to engage with these different jurisdictions. And I think you've seen similar approaches in Singapore with the Monetary Authority of Singapore, Dubai, which is really the first, has a first ever virtual asset-only regulator, VARA. Um, so I think we're seeing some consistency across jurisdictions. I think I'm I'm super excited uh, to sort of see what happens in the UK in early 2023. We're going to see a bunch of consultations around um, CBDCs, um, around a uh, finance, around a whole bunch of other sort of topics in the space. So there is a lot going on today. I'll I'll, I'll close with this sort of piece, and that is. I don't know what's going to happen in the U.S. The political environment is just not right for a mika style sort of framework. You're not going to get that sort of agreement across Congress. But what we are going to see is sort of piecemeal. So we'll see something on stablecoins, likely a, a pretty stringent reserve Requirement in early 2023. Um, and, and then we'll see there's a White House, the executive branch has a framework for digital assets out today. And it basically says more enforcement actions. So I think we're, we can expect to see more enforcement actions from the SEC, from OFAC in terms of sanctions from FinCEN, which is our financial intelligence unit, the, the, the AML regulator in the US. So I think we'll still see a lot of activity, but I'm not sure we're going to get to sort of a mika style framework.
1: And then. In Jessica, what role does, does FATF play in all this? I hear this acronym of, of FATF around, you know, AML uh, regulation and things like the travel rule. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about what are some of the global bodies that are trying to coordinate this, you know, among, you know, different jurisdictions and, and, and how that, that might play out?
3: Sure. Yeah. So uh, the FATF stands for the Financial Action Task Force, and it's basically the global standard setter for anything to do with anti-financial crime. Um, And they come out with a number of guidelines and a number of principles that set the global framework and the global tone for how we deal with financial crime prevention. And in the case of um, crypto, they have come up with a number of different guidelines, which are very slowly filtering through to national regulations and flowing through to things like uh, MECA and the, uh, the EU. I mean, for example, Recommendation 16, I think, from FATF talks about the wire transfer rule, which was then transferred across into the travel rule in crypto. Um, so it's really FATF sets that tone, and then over the course of the next three to five years, you will see, you'll see this filtering down through regulation. And they really, really have set the direction as to which direction everyone needs to go in. So I think it's good to see FATF setting that tone, and it's absolutely critical that they do so that there is some sort of global framework that starts appearing. I mean, with the EU and Micro, I think that's a really impressive framework. Um, and it's something that sets a, it's its a really harmonized framework that doesn't really seem to be appearing in the US, which has many different um, sectors and different segments that are playing different parts. But it's good to see. And that's all filtering through from FATF, ultimately.
2: Well, one thing that's kind of interesting about FATF, and I think Jessica got got right to this, is that it's almost surprising to see sort of how far ahead they are. Uh, when they're talking about these issues, then sort of regulators globally, it's just a standard setter, right? They're coming up with guidelines. But there's a pretty serious expectation that that member states should be following these guidelines. But for example, you know, two years ago, FATF provided guidance around DeFi in particular and NFTs. Um, We still haven't seen really regulatory action in that space. We're still seeing regulators talk about it. So it's sort of, you know, it it was relatively cursory and we're going to see a lot, lot more, um, no doubt. But, it's you know, you you find at least the conversations a couple of years ahead of where actual sort of, you know, regulators are.
3: But I think that's a really interesting point, actually, that the EU and the sort of new maker framework, they didn't pull out NFTs because in that consultation process, it was very, very complicated. And they decided not to address it within the current um, framework, which I think is actually the right thing to do. It's not a knee-jerk reaction. They realized that more work needed to be done, more consultation, and they have taken that approach. So whilst they are still behind what FATF is trying to push out, they're actually taking a really sensible approach to this and making sure that what does appear in the framework in the future is actually the right framework going forward.
2: Really, really well said. And I think the UK is another example of this, right? There was some really a lot of conversation on the travel rule and what the expectations are, and also sort of what unhosted wallets or self-hosted wallets um, should sort of, sort of sort of look like when you're talking about the travel rule and, and, and regulation. And you know, I think the expectation was to call them high risk or to to put different standards on them. In the US, they talked about you know, maybe not allowing exchanges to engage with them at all, right, or or certainly creating other, you know, KYC and other requirements. And the, the UK came out and said this. They said, look, um, you know, unhosted wallets are not inherently riskier. Um, but like anything else, you should take a risk-based approach. You should gain as much granular information as possible. You should try to get the best information you can on where you're sending. And then maybe you need to do heightened due diligence depending on that. But it's, I like, you know, when jurisdictions sort of take those of standards and then apply some common sense, um, you know, regulation to them.
0: I um, I wanted to kind of take advantage of both of you, Jessica and Ari that are here. And I've been, I've been dabbling into this. I'm not, I'm not a lawyer. Um, I'm just super curious about all of this and, I'm, uh, you know, just a lifelong learner. But one of the things that I come across very often is that the fact that we're, trying to apply what seems to be an old framework, trying to regulate in a centralized manner over something that is built to exist in a decentralized form. So it's a node framework with a new paradigm, which is the decentralized finance. That serves for centralized exchanges and centralized players or stable coin issuers. But we've seen with the demise of FTX, Uniswap, Takes second in the volume of traded Ethereum um, ahead of Coinbase so if that points to anything that means that we'll see more decentralized protocols play a larger role in the new crypto ecosystem uh, if you want to call it like that that might not be the same way of regulating these actors than it is to regulate a centralized exchange so what are these regulations and regulators doing or looking into doing that will then allow us to have, and I know that the G- the DJNs are gonna kill me for this, regulated DeFi, which is probably how we get to mass adoption. So, what is your both you know perspective to this? Because it seems that it's perfect that we're having this conversation, but it applies largely to centralized entities. When a protocol is running autonomously on the blockchain, how do we actually make that work to the general public?
2: Yeah, I'm happy to kick things off. Look, it's the most important question today in the space, and I think it's really, really well stated and very articulately said. Um, I, I think this is the biggest challenge for regulators. They have always regulated intermediaries. They've always relied on, on financial institutions to provide information, to be a place where law enforcement can go to get information, right? You don't have anyone to serve a subpoena on in a truly decentralized space, right? How are you going to get that information? So I think to date, we've been trying to figure out how to regulate you know, cryptocurrency and the way it moves on blockchains in, in the same way we've always regulated intermediaries. Um, but I also do think some sort of regulation is going to be important to your point because institutional investors that want to engage with DeFi are going to be reluctant to do so until there are sort of rules of the road. Um, and I think a lot of these are technology challenges, too. Um, we've been talking a little bit about sort of, yes, you can, you can do some compliance on the front end, which is the most centralized part of a, of a DeFi project or protocol. Or, um, but, but it's much harder to do that sort of at the protocol layer. And I think but what we're seeing is people sort of really work on the technology today and really build some solutions to this. Um, but a lot of this is going to have to be baked in if it really is truly automated. Um, and we're, we'll, we'll see, which I know is not the most satisfactory answer, but I think it's the right one. And that is like, we, to date, we've been dealing with centralized crypto, if you will. And I think the next sort of frontier is really thinking about sort of smart, fair regulation that doesn't stifle innovation but in sort of a more decentralized world?
3: Yeah, I think that is, it's a very, very interesting and very big question. And I personally don't have a big issue with regulators starting with the existing framework because where else should they start? You know, it's a very, very big question. And I think starting with the existing framework and looking at how to deploy that in a new environment is not, exact, it's not a bad thing and actually is the best way of doing it, but they need to be proportionate in line with the risks that they're seeing. And what we're seeing is people dealing with the next big acronym, DeFi or whatever it is, the NFTs, and the regulators looking at this because this is what's in the press. But actually, is it really the biggest amount of money laundering? Is that that through NFTs? Probably not. Cash is still king when it comes to money laundering. So it's about taking that proportionate approach and making sure that it's also risk-based and proportionate to the actual risks that are taking place. But on the flip side, I do think that decentralized exchanges need more regulation to try and simulate more sort of widespread adoption. And in most cases, decentralized exchanges are actually relatively centralized in many ways because you have some form of user that has admin privileges or something like that, where you do have some kind of centralized part of it, where you might be able to deploy some of these existing frameworks. And as Ari said, obviously, at the front end, that's where the the easiest way to deploy some of the controls. But it is obviously much more difficult in that environment. And there are a lot more questions around the culture and whether or not people in the industry would appreciate more um, regulation on decentralized exchanges. But I think it is important, but only if it's deployed in a proportionate manner.
2: Yeah. And, and just to add to that, because I think, you know, one of the ways regulators have been talking about DeFi is, hey, is this actually decentralized? And that seems to be the first question they're asking. So to Jessica's point, you can take out a lot of sort of DeFi, you know, entities and sort of put them into a more centralized um, sort of category. But then you have the really, truly decentralized protocols, right? Just Kai mentioned as, in terms of tornado cash, just, you know, let uh, software run wild and there's no there is no sort of, you know, um, owner operator. Right. Um, and I think that then it becomes really interesting. I will say that this is a future state. What we see at TRM when we're looking on chain is we're still seeing d- users on DeFi engage with centralized exchanges because the reality is that you still need on ramps and off ramps to more usable. You know fiat currencies. I understand regulators want to be looking at a future state where that's not true, where we have sort of actual financial activity occurring on chain or or full, uh, you know, financial activity occurring on chain. But I think today the reality is there are still places to serve a subpoena. There's still places to get KYC, Um, and this is this is very much a future state.
1: So what about stablecoins? Because it seems like this is an interesting hybrid here where you have a centralized entity, if we're referring to fiat-backed stablecoins, you you have a connection to the banking system. Uh, They're the ones issuing, bringing these stablecoins into circulation. Today, stablecoins, once they're created, you have a KYC AML program on the on-ramps and the off-ramps, but then they're flowing between many different addresses you know, over these networks, uh, you have some of the large uh, stablecoin issuers with controls in their smart contracts, able to to block uh, you know transactions, you know, if they're you know touching a sanctioned address. Do you think that that regime will continue, where it's still just the on ramps and the off ramps, plus blocking in a contract for kind of the worst type of activity, or do you see potential where you know regulators might say? You know, with bank wires, again, it's between two KYC consumers. Do you have to have an allow list where a stablecoin would only be between two entities that have gone through KYC? Is the current regime tenable and do you think will continue as it is right now?
2: My view is, I, I think we're probably moved – as we get more cent, de, truly decentralized. We are probably moving more towards that allow model, and I think that, that sort of goes with what we talked about earlier in terms of digital identity and having some indication of who you know who a counterparty is um as you're engaged in a transaction um and i think that's probably where this is headed i think that we need to technolog- technological solutions uh to deal with a lot of this but i do i do think that's likely where we're headed and i think stable coins play a really unique role in the ecosystem obviously uh but i don't think this sort of like a framework necessarily has to be that different for stable coins uh it's sort of a lot of the same principles are are uh, are, are are sort of you know are applicable
3: yeah, there's a few interesting conversations happening in the UK. So, uh, HM Treasury I think confirmed this year that we're start going to be looking at stablecoins just as a means of payment and starting to bring them into our general payments regulatory framework. So, making some changes to our electronic money regulations, our payment services regulations, and starting to just bring them to scope as a legitimate, not, legitimate not necessarily leg- 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 legitimate, but a, a standard. Form of payment. So it's going to start be pulling into that sort of uh, payments regulatory sphere.
0: So we could definitely spend Christmas talking about these, <laughs> but we're almost, we're almost up to time. Uh, Matt, our producer is gonna kill us if we keep going. So I, <laughs> so let's wrap today's discussion. This was amazing. Thank you so much uh, for your participation. Uh, this was uh, really informative, and I, and I, you know, given the situation and the market, uh, this is going to be a very well-performing episode. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, let's see. Where can people find more uh, about you, Jessica, and about your company?
3: Sure. So Fintrail is Fintrail.com, nice and simple. And Jessica Cath on LinkedIn is the best way to find me.
2: Love it. Ari? Love it. And same. uh, TRMLabs.com. Subscribe to our weekly newsletter, the weekly roundup. And uh, yes, I am on LinkedIn as well. Just Ari, A-R-I, last name Redboard, R-E-D-B-O-R-D. Awesome. Kai? On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and Visa.com
1: slash crypto.
0: And as for me, you can find me on Twitter, 0 and on LinkedIn, Mauricio Magaldi and obviously 11FS.com. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We have lots in the works, and we're so excited to be talking about crypto, blockchain, and Web3 with you again. If you can't wait until the next episode, take a look at the many previous episodes and get yourself properly immersed in the world of crypto. And if you really love it, please leave us a review. It helps us make it better and helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Blockchain Insider or email us at podcasts at 11FS.com. This is all for today. Stay rare. Stay weird. LFG.